Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Tobias Wright and Weston Williams. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with American baritone Lucia Lucas. She sang the title role in Mozart's Don Giovanni at Tulsa Opera last month. And then Weston crunches the numbers, critiquing the Royal Opera House's upcoming season against the Dodson scale. And plus, in the two-minute drill, the Met bails on producing a complex show. The Holland Festival in Amsterdam doesn't bail on producing a complex show. Lots more hot takes from our team and everything else that went down in the past week in Opera Land. And, of course, you can call us on air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR. Our number in studio. Give us your opinion on what we're talking about. 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at OperaBoxScore. Or just post on our Facebook page. Great to be back in the studio with Tobias Wright. George Cedarquist, it's great to be back in the studio with you. And Weston Williams. Oh, I'm back in the studio with me, all three of us. Toby, here we are. Uh, NBA Game 5, Raptors up 3-1. Middle June. And what does that mean? It means it's the greatest sports time of the year. NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, dog days of summer are coming. And what we're learning about the NBA Finals is that Kevin Durant, who has not played, is in fact the most important player on planet Earth, maybe Mars too. <laughs> that's, that's underselling some of the Martian players that I, I, I'm very aware of. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Hailed as, quote, one of the most powerful and beautiful baritone voices you could hear, American baritone Lucia Lucas is making waves on the operatic main stages. Lucas has resided in Germany for the past decade and performs in cities all over the globe. This season, she made her role debut as Wotan in Wagner's Die Valkyrie in Magdeburg. And, of course, engagements this season include the title role in Mozart's Don Giovanni. That was in Tulsa Opera. Lucia joins us tonight live via phone from Germany. Lucia, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's, what, 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning? (laughs) Yeah, it's 4 a.m. right now. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you agree to talk to us at that ungodly hour? (laughs) Because because she's fabulous. That's why. Lucia, you started in in Chicago, did you not? I did. I did my master's uh, and artist diploma with Roosevelt University, Chicago, uh, Chicago College of Performing Arts. 
the um, artist diploma was also with in conjunction with Chicago Opera Theater. And did you do any fringe or what we would call storefront opera projects in your time in Chicago? Um, yeah, I, I worked with uh, Millennium Chamber Players, um, and the organizer of that, uh, Robert Chavino, is now a super famous conductor um, <laughs> who performs all over the world. Um, and we were doing, we were doing, uh, we, we did Lucretia, we did Boheme, um, we did Soldier's Tale, we did a couple other things, mm. um, and. You know, it, it, my participation in it came because I wasn't um, being cast uh, in certain semesters of the opera. So I searched out other opportunities. So uh, obviously you had uh, the, the start here in Chicago and then like many singers, you kind of decided that uh, Europe, uh, specifically Germany, where you're calling from now, uh, was sort of the uh, the way to go. Um, what, what was it like uh, moving to Germany to try to start your career in Europe? Well, luckily I got a scholarship um, for a year to go sing with uh, Deutsche Oper Berlin as well as Torino, Teatro Reggio Torino. So I did um, m- many, many performances. I did 46 performances at Deutsche Oper my first season. I did 18 in, in Torino. But the reason, one of the reasons for going was because I wanted to be able to sing Wagner and I wanted to be able to sing mm. it as good and as understandable as a German. And so now I've been here for 10 years, and my German is pretty good. My singing German is pretty much indistinguishable from, from a native speaker. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. That's the, I mean, that's the dream, is to be able to be um, exactly the same as all those of your contemporaries. Yeah, I mean, if you can have American singing technique and German language, it's pretty good for, for a <laughs> That's all you need. Uh, do you think that uh, moving to Germany for sort of a pre-professional uh, is still a really viable option for an American singer? Or are there some uh, extra hurdles to uh, jump over to get to that point? I mean, if you can come, it's the best way to ensure that you can do this as a career, you know, between be- between being a star if you if you come out of one of these young artist programs and go straight into being a star then fine but if not um that's a really difficult pathway uh, to do a regional career or to do a lot of cover stuff at the big houses but if you come here you can sing 50 shows a year and really work mm. on your craft um go ahead uh- uh, do do you find that um, singing uh, in the United States is a is a disadvantage then, as far as that goes? Uh, do you find yourself limited by yeah. the opportunities? Or, uh... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I go when I went to do uh, Giovanni, the rehearsal period plus the two shows that was less than a month being there, so that goes by really quickly. But when you're in a German theater and you're and you're in a repertoire theater you may do 10, 20 shows of one opera and you really can work on it instead of hyper-focusing on one project Mm -hmm. and then it's gone. So speaking of Tulsa Opera, hi Lucia, this is Tobias Wright Um, and I would love it if you could just talk a little bit about your relationship with Tobias Picker and I say this because we all know that the name Tobias is the greatest name in the world and only wonderful people can have that name. (laughs) 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for your support. <laughs> so um, I went to, I, I flew to New York um, from Germany specifically for an audition for him. He was looking for um, specifically trans singers to audition for uh, a role that he was writing in a new opera. Mm -hmm. And I sang for him and he was really happy with me. And um, we're probably doing a project. Well, we are doing a project in the future. We're doing a Danish girl, um, but it's quite a few years off. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, he said, are you interested in doing Giovanni? And I said, absolutely. I had done a commendatory Leporello and Mazzetto before, so why not? Why not finish the whole show? Um, so the, that uh, wasn't part of the plan then, um, but it was obviously an added bonus. And was it the first time that you had the opportunity to do Giovanni, or was it just the right time? It was the first time I had the opportunity to do it. I haven't said no to very many things. Mm -hmm. The only time I've ever said no is when I had two projects at the same time. Right. Um, so what have you found about Tulsa? Uh, that's made it a place that welcomed you and allowed you to promote your artistry and how have audiences, how did the audiences uh, react and, and what were the events like and audience engagement? What was that all like for you there? Oh, it was really, really positive. Um, there were people who admittedly said, you know, you're their first trans person I met. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel if I can sort of be an advocate for the trans community, um, you know, in, in the opera field and then also an advocate for the opera in the trans community and in the LGBT community, I, I feel like both communities can learn um, about each other. And I think that, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a bad first opera for a lot of people. And we had a more diverse and a younger crowd there hmm. uh, than ever, apparently. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking with American baritone Lucia Lucas calling in from Germany. Uh, I wanted to ask, um, uh, uh, obviously this has been a, a really big sort of uh, hit, uh, at least on my news feed and all my social media. Uh, your name has been popping up. You've been doing with uh, interviews with NPR, uh, Associated Press, Us, of course. Uh, that's the big three right there. Uh, <laughs> and some other lesser podcasts, I'm sure. Uh, how, how is it sort of dealing with that, uh, that limelight, that focus on you uh, off the stage? Uh, do you find, uh, do you welcome it? Do you uh, kind of don't, don't want to talk about it anymore? Or uh, what's the deal with that? Well, I, I think that it's all part of proving to the mainstream opera crowd that people are interested in having diverse talent on their stage. Your audience does want to see diverse talent. I think that it's um, a, a solution to the uh, unfortunately named leaky bucket problem. I think <laughs> that, like, I, I don't like the name of that, but you know, I, I think that it is a solution as a, if you diversify your audience, you'll get more people in seats. Do you find that that's a particular problem for American audiences uh, versus, say, audiences in Germany? Well, audiences in Germany are younger, but also the ticket prices are subsidized at a higher rate. Right. 
Um, last time I checked, I think there were something about 60 to 70% subsidized in the U.S., but they're more like 80 or 90% subsidized in Germany. Oh, wow. So it's significantly cheaper. Going back to that NPR interview that was with Ari Shapiro, and one thing that you said was that uh, it's meaningful this is being the first transgender woman to sing a lead role on an American stage. It's meaningful because anytime something happens for the first time, it's meaningful. But it, it shouldn't be meaningful. Trans people shouldn't have a barrier to entry except for just talent. So do you feel like the press is it's overly focused on you being the first transgender woman to sing a lead role on an American stage? Should it be focused on your work or are those two things insuperable? Well, I just always divert it back to uh, my my craft and... I, you know, I've been doing this my entire adult life. I've been singing opera, and I've been singing opera full-time as my only job for the last 10 years. And there's not a lot of people who can say that. Mm. So, yeah, there's yeah, it's important when somebody does something for the first time. But if you, if the other side tries to take the the point of view, well, the only reason why you got the job is because of your diversity or whatever, I think that that's doing my craft a disservice. Hmm. Um, it's Tobias again, and I have a question. It's both um, technical and societal, I would say. And, and that's, do you feel pressure to have a femme-perceived sound in your speech? Um, do you even care about that, or does it not matter at all? Well, I, th- I think it's easier when I'm in person, because I don't generally get misgender when, it, when I'm in person, mm-hmm. and I talk about the same. Um I would talk higher if I didn't sing all the time, but you right. know I need access to my low notes. Yeah, so. and that, oh, that's yeah, a good exactly. Point. And from one singer to another, that I was actually kind of curious because um, I mean, raising your larynx constantly to affect sound. I didn't know if that was something you had considered you needed to do, or so. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, there. no, that's not that's not actually something that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've trained to speak a little bit higher, but but it it's not at the detriment of my baritone sound. I need to mm-hmm. always have my F. If I don't have my F, <laughs> then I start worrying about, uh, start worrying about doing my day job. And it's sort of a compromise that I've settled on. I haven't compromised a lot mm-hmm. with my identity, but that, I guess that's one of the things. Do you find it's, uh, uh, obviously the talking and the singing are, are two sort of different worlds. Um, but do you find that uh, as a, a trans woman uh, singing on operatic stages, or like for an instance, Don Giovanni is a role, um, not just a, a typically a male role, but it's also very thematically male in the way that Don Giovanni interacts with, um, with other people and other characters. Do you find that informs the way you approach it as an artist? Yeah, I mean, when when I do uh, when I do these very hyper masculine roles, right. um, some might say with lots of toxic masculinity. Right. <laughs> um, it's it doesn't really have a it doesn't have a blowback on my own personal identity. I think sometimes singers try and defend their characters, and I really don't have any of that. And I know that even if I'm being really intense with Serlina when we get off stage. She knows that that's not me. What other roles are on your 
I'm not going to say bucket list because we're avoiding the leaky bucket idea. <laughs> what other roles are on your, your dream list? Uh, well, I'd love to to do uh, an entire ring because I've only done Valkyr. Um, I'd love to do Hollander. I'd love to do Johanahan. I'd love to mm. do Macbetho. I'd love to do Iago. That's um, a... Basically, Wagner Verdi is, is my 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 place. That's, that's a lot of sort of like uh, heavier roles than uh, Don Giovanni. Did, did you, uh, obviously, you know, you said you went to uh, uh, Germany for Wagner specifically, and Wagner and Mozart are in two different worlds. Uh, how, how do you, as a singer, approach uh, jumping from the world of Wotan to the world of Don Giovanni? Well, I really didn't work on Giovanni a lot until my last Votan. My last Votan was the 23rd of November, mm -hmm, and sure. then I really started digging in. Uh, the The fact is, every single role that I do, not only acting-wise, but also vocally-wise, I sort of figure out where I want to go with it. So, you know, my voice did shift up for Giovanni and did get lighter, and I did some auditions in the middle and it really was sort of like shifting gears or, you know, putting in the four-wheel drive. Lucia, before we wrap it up, tell us about the film Lucia's Voice. So the entire time that I was in Tulsa, I had a film crew following me around, uh, documenting the process. And uh, the film's called Lucia's Voice. Uh, there's a Facebook page. Please go over and, and check it out and, and like it. Um, that gives them an idea of distribution stuff. And it should be out in 2020. Um, also, it, it included things like my dad seeing me for the first time in 10 years, oh, wow. which was super weird um, after, <laughs> after the, the show. Um, he has never visited Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't because of my transition that he hadn't seen me. He just hadn't come to Europe yet. So, um, yeah, it was it was a bunch of cameras following me around, and uh, we'll see because I'm not in charge of producing it. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, it's positive. <laughs> and there's also, of course, your long format interview on the. Hook, Push, and Pray podcast with Nicholas Brownlee. On that podcast, you, you talk about the imposter syndrome. Can you tell our listeners about what the imposter syndrome is? Yeah. Uh, the imposter syndrome, you should never have it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, good. Because, uh, so what, what imposter syndrome is, is thinking that maybe you're not good enough or, or thinking that the people around you are more qualified for whatever, whether it's singing or just your day job. Um, thinking that maybe the people around you have a more of a right to it. And so we were talking about it in the context of people being upset that I was cast or something like that. And, and I said, you know, you're not going to put imposter syndrome on me because I know how long I've been singing opera. I've been singing opera 20 years and you can try and dump stuff on me, but you know, I've ground out this career and I put in, put in the work. So it's, I'm, I'm not going to take that. Lucia, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score with us tonight. We're going to let you go, hopefully get some sleep <laughs> back there in <laughs> Germany. You so Again, uh, you can check out on our Facebook page the link to the Lucia's Voice Facebook page, as well as let's check out the Hook, Push, and Pray 
podcast. Lucia, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, the Dodson scale lands in Covent Garden with unusual results. That's next, only on America's talk radio show about opera, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Subject to interpretation and analysis, let's crunch the numbers. Thanks, Norm, and thank you all to listening to our show tonight. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. George Cedarquist in sunny Studio One with Tobias Wright. <laughs> Did you call this studio sunny? Yeah, I don't know why. I said All right, that. I'm cool with it. <laughs> yeah. You know, last week I was in Canada. And oh, Canada. Oh, Canada. Oh, and we were quite far north in Banff National Park. I don't know if you are familiar, but speaking of it being sunny, it stayed light out until 11, 11.30. It was quite remarkable. That's too sunny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, not like bright, you know, but it was still pretty remarkably light. Okay, that's all I have to say. <laughs> that is your 60-word uh, or less review of Canada as a whole, and I love it. <laughs> Mountains, water, light. <laughs> uh, well, of course, hockey as well. Stanley Cup playoffs proceeding apace. Bruins managing to knock that series at three games apiece. I was convinced after we spoke to Andrew Jorgensen that the Blues were going to take the whole thing home <laughs> just for him. Uh, but apparently there's one more game Alas. left. Royal Opera House season is out now for 2019-2020. Weston Williams, you did the number crunching on I this one. I did the number crunching. Now, a little bit of back, uh, a little behind the scenes, part the curtains a little bit, if you will. Uh, you might notice this is a little bit late. Uh, we weren't right on top of the announcement for this one, and that's because due to an unforeseen technical difficulty, uh, this is actually a lost segment. Uh, the the uh, station we were using just, you know, it just, uh, just completely exploded, but I did all this math, and I was like, George, we gotta bring it back. We gotta crunch those numbers. <laughs> Your the wish is my command. Deserve to know. So. Uh, we went through and uh, crunched the numbers. Uh, there's over 20 operas in this season, so it was a lot of math. It took me about five hours, but uh, we love we you, Weston. <laughs> so uh, there are a couple of highlights I think that I want to kind of uh, bring out here. Um, first of all, um, there's not a lot of uh, repetition 
in this, uh, in terms of uh, com- uh, operas by the same composer. It's all in pairs. Um, so they did lo- lose a little bit um, for, uh, for having multiple Verdi operas, multiple Mozart operas, multiple Britain operas, uh, and things like that. But there, it, it wasn't excessive. It wasn't like uh, some of these things that you see in a German opera house where they're doing six operas by uh, Wagner, and that, that's a whole thing. Um, but this is also, I think, the first time in Dodson scale history where we actually had multiple instances uh, uh, of operas by the same composer who is a living composer. Uh, and that is uh, the composer Gerald Barry. He's an Irish uh, uh, composer, uh, and he is doing two operas this season uh, with um, uh, with the Royal Opera House, uh, the Intelligence Park, which I believe was his first opera, which came out in 1990. So they got some uh, extra points there as well. Uh, they also have a woman conductor for that one, uh, Jessica Cotis, uh, and also a brand new opera, um, which is called Alice's Adventures Underground, which fun fact, was the original uh, title for Alice in Wonderland. And that one's brand new. So they, uh, Interesting so, that Wonderland is underground. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it she could have been down, anywhere. She falls down a hole. Yeah, I mean, she does fall down a hole, but like... <laughs> yeah. Get with the program, Toby. <laughs> Why did, Alice falls down a hole. Um, so I think it's really interesting that uh, these, since he's an Irish composer, this is actually uh, a collaboration with um, the Irish, uh, oh shoot, Irish National Opera? I, I forget. Uh, I'd have to look that up. Um, it uh, is with Irish National Opera. Yeah. Again, that is very unusual. Right, you could do two different operas by a living composer in the same season. I mean, I think I'm trying to, th- I'm trying to think of another. Yeah, it's not happened on our show. Yeah, I think it's really like that, exciting since we've started doing the Dadson scale, especially the the choices of the two operas. He's got the brand new one, which I believe is a world premiere, and then uh, the Intelligence Park, which was his very first opera. Uh, and one of the things that fascinates me about living composers is their sort of arc because you know we always talk about when we're talking about uh, say uh, Wagner you know you've got you've got early Wagner with you know uh, uh, you know Flying Dutchman and before then you got middle of uh, uh, Wagner with you know your Tannhäuser your your ring cycle and you got late Wagner with your uh, sort of Tristan and Parsifal stylistically all very distinct uh, and it's always really exciting to me to kind of see that develop uh, kind of in person I think this is a really smart way to do it so the Royal Opera House actually lost five points on the Dodson scale because they were doing two I know. pieces it, by Gerald Barry. I, I think they should be getting points for that. I, that that was the thing. I was I, I was almost it's what's I mean. I always say the Dodson scale is infallible, but sometimes you know I, I have doubts in my heart. Um, <laughs> but they they were doing just fine because they they also had um, you know uh, a bunch of extra points uh, in the form of. Pieces like The Lost Thing by Jules Maxwell, which is based on a picture book by uh, a, a person written by a person of color, uh, Sean Tan. Um, they yeah, also I've read have... some of his picture books, actually, to my kids. Oh, really? They're extremely dark. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, it's, I'll leave it, it at that. They're not bad, they're opera. just dark. Um, they're also doing... Um, uh, a lots of exciting things. They're doing a new, oh, another world premiere. She described it to death by Matt Rogers, who's a composer I'm not familiar with. Um, um, but uh, it also has a female librettist, Sally O'Reilly, which is really exciting. Uh, what really bolstered a lot of the season, even though they have, you know, they they have your Otellos, your La Boems, your uh, your your Toscas, your things like this, um, but they have a very strong support of. Uh, 
uh, of singers of color mm-hmm. in the cast who you see showing up uh, all the time. And it's mostly their young artists. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, they're doing a production um, of Handel's uh, Susanna, um, which consists entirely of these young artists, which, you know, loses some points because, you know, it's a, it, it is a cheap way to do it. But there's very clearly an artistic uh, thing they're going for because everyone in the cast is a young artist of color. Mm. Uh, there's a woman director, Isabel Kettle, um, and it's... Uh, Really, out of this entire list, even though it technically lost some points on uh, for being all young artists, that's one of the ones that I'm like, I kind of want to get a plane ticket and go see that. You know, it's a very specific artistic choice, uh, and I don't think just a um, a way of saving money. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM, running the Royal Opera House upcoming season through the Dodson scale. When you look at the body of work as a whole in Covent Garden. So 114 total points for the season. But with this number of productions, it averages out to less than five points a show. Well, Compare that to a a COT, which is obviously going to crank in way higher. Right. Yes, but, I mean, you compare it also to the Met, who had a net of, what, 40? Yeah. I mean, this is actually... Now, it it may not, on the surface, seem creatively... um, like it's risk taking any risks necessarily, and I think there are risks when you do new works, especially you know multiple new works um, by a new composer. When you do a show that's all young artists, those types of things, those are risky decisions. But you know, multiple Puccini, multiple Verdi, multiple Mozart, those things are not actually creative risks um, on the surface. But when you dig a little bit deeper, to have 114 total, and that's with all of the, all of the deductions, I mean that's far and away higher than anything that we've scored with the Dodson scale. Well, the other way that you see risk-taking happen in Covent Garden, which you don't see at the Met, is when you look at who's directing these productions and are they new productions or not, Mm -hmm. right? Right. So, like, the Don Giovanni production is by Casper Holton, the former um, artistic director at Covent Garden. Uh, A number of these are directed by Sir David McVicker. Um, Right. That... Those productions are going to, they're going to be new. They're going to have a new feel to them. Uh, as well as Death in Venice. That's another new production as well. By I knew you would spot the Britain on this list. <laughs> well, that's what Matt uh, Cummings pointed out, the Death in Britain. He wants to do a road trip. Oh, absolutely. There, there's some, uh, there's some, uh, uh, I, I want to give a shout out. They're doing uh, um, Agrippina uh, by Handel with a friend of show, Eston Davies, uh, who we had on uh, not too long ago. Um, we're talking about, if we're talking about weird casting, uh, they're doing a Verter with Juan with Diego, Diego Flores. Which, okay, I love Juan Diego Flores. And oh, I've, absolutely. I've listened to him sing Verter. Um, but oh, only, you have? But where, only where in, was that? in a studio. Oh, you were you were in the studio? No, no, no. <laughs> I listened to a studio recording of him singing. You can just hear Toby breathing in the so, background of I, every and, take. And we know, and we talked about it when, in our last segment when we did this. That obviously Royal Opera House is not as big as the Met, but it's still a pretty substantial orchestra to be competing with for that type of a voice. So I'll be interested to hear how that goes. I love Juan Angel Flores. I think he's a great artist. I know a lot of people have opinions about his sound. Um, no, I think he's got a great sound. It's just uh, when I, when I hear Verter, the color does not 
come to me from Juan Diego. Flores. Right. <laughs> the, the the really the 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 tenor who pops into mind for Verter for me for some reason is like Jonas Kaufmann. You know, yeah, a heavier, almost baritone voice. You know, and not Juan Diego's leaping high C's. I'd be very interested to see a production with uh, with him singing it. Um, another good reason to do the road trip, I suppose. But I do think it's an interesting casting choice, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, another sort of interesting one on this uh, list is uh, is a production called Zauberland, uh, which is which combines music by Bernard uh, Focru. I'm not going to pronounce that right. It's French. Uh, Bernard Focru. Um, him and uh, Robert Schumann, who I can pronounce. Uh, and this is more uh, based on the description. It was a uh, more of a sort of a semi-staged song ty- uh, cycle, but it's got a woman director. Um, um, probably more persons of color in it because the it's about um, the process of being a refugee and emigrating to a new land. Um, and it's uh, it's one of those one of those things that feels very relevant in a way that I don't ordinarily associate with the Royal Opera House. Do you know what I mean? Uh, not to diss them too uh, too hard, but they are, you know, sort of the old established company you don't really look to for um, new relevant works. I, I think that this season has a lot of interesting steps in that direction. Hmm. Uh, another one uh, that's sort of interesting to me. I I'm going to read a hot take that Matt wrote. Oh, I'll, go I'll for give it. You, I'll give go you a break it. here. Uh, Matt... <laughs> Matt wrote in uh, Kaufman, Jonas Kaufman, in the singing Floristan and Fidelio. And Matt's note was Kaufman in the most boring role of all time. <laughs> and went, Thank you. Yeah, that show. It really do, George, do you like bad. Fidelio? I'm I'm not a huge fan. Have you ever Fidelio. Have you ever directed? it? I've never directed it. I I don't think I ever would. I think probably. Floristan I, is a I it's just, a it's a beautiful character. I just I would just say no to and that. And really was, hard music. What's wrong with you guys? I was also not, if you like opera but are kind of like not really prone to going for four and a half hours. Boom, Fidelio. <laughs> the thing True. is, the thing with Fidelio is that I I never liked Fidelio until I first saw it performed. Uh, with period instruments, and it changed the entire work for me. Um, Beethoven is sort of my line in the sand where I, I need to have period instruments to make it work. Uh, and I think that once you see the people in the pit uh, picking apart their natural uh, tuned horns just to play it, I think it adds a certain level of risk that I find appealing. Uh, one thing that I do want to mention about this uh, particular season that I think is a failing uh, is that uh, I mean we, we've got plenty of operas in Italian, plenty in German, plenty in English, um, but really outside of like uh, and, and some French as well. Uh, but outside of that, we only have one opera in in a point getting category uh, for language and that is Czech uh, and it's it's Yanufa which is a really neat opera um, uh, but I, I I found it really odd because you know if you're looking at uh, uh, if you look at you know uh, like the Bayerische Staatsoper um, it's got Russian operas it's got Czech operas it's got everything we only have the one Czech for this season and I think that's kind of an odd uh, I think it's just an oddity that I wasn't expecting them to be falling down on. When you go to the Royal Opera House website, and the link is on our website, operaboxcore.com, you scroll down and you scroll down and you scroll down at all these different productions. What's unusual about that is that they mix in opera productions, ballet productions, Mm -hmm. young artist productions, festival productions, all into one house. And not just, not just that. For, 
first of all, I, I want to men- just mention that this website, the ROH's website, oh my is bad. God. It's a very bad website. It took me way longer than it had to to get all this information to you. But I do think that... Do you want a pat on the back or what? No, for I, no I want to give you a pat on the back. You have to be like an expert at using the get internet. Get your hands off him. No, <laughs> an expert at, be, at using the internet to even like figure out who's in these shows. And like that was a pain. It's true. Yep. Yep. I had to Google things because they didn't have hyperlinks. But this is a topic we should have for another day, though. Honestly, opera companies have really, 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 really awful websites. True. And and it's almost every single one of them. Yeah. It's it's universal. I want information. I want bios. I want to know who's singing what day. I want to be able to click, and I want to be able to click on their name and get a bio, and then go to their website. I want to be able to see who's... You want to listen to the damn thing, too, right? I want to... Yes. And it's... They make it impossible. I'm sorry. I'm very upset about it. (laughs) Like, I looked at this and got nauseous. I was like, I... It's just not good. You know who's got a bad website? Bayreuth has got an awful website. And you know who else has a bad website? Lady Copper ca- of Chicago. They don't get, true. Bayreuth doesn't care. That's also well, true. Yeah, they, could have, they could have no website. That is true. That is, yeah. But this, that, that's a bit of a tangent. We're going back to what you were saying, George. My apologies. Uh, even though the website did not help the matter, the uh, the streamlining of having everything be sort of on equal footing with the ballets, the, the children's productions, the operas, um, I do think is kind of... Uh, indicative of how the Royal Opera House thinks of itself as sort of a bastion of not just opera, but of all sort of high arts and culture in Britain. Uh, and I th- I think you can see that reflected in the season, too, in terms of the choices. I mean, they've got Turn of the Screw, very British. Um, you know, they're doing, um, uh, the, even the Gerald Barry, even though it's Irish, it's all part of, I think, sort of the reaching out to Ireland and sort of, you know, healing the divisions of the Troubles, you know, back several decades ago. Uh, may I also say, I think it's the first time I've, I can't name, like, any Irish composers aside from now Gerald Barry. Can you guys? Uh, We're going to turn that one over to the listeners. <laughs> you can email us at Opera Box Score. Please let me know. Gmail.com. <laughs> An Irish composer. Yeah, Irish opera composer specifically. It's just not It's just not a big opera town, you know what I mean? Well, it's a country. Well, yeah, I, I use the town star. metaphorically. Okay. okay. Thank okay. you so much. You. One other thing I would like to point out uh, before we uh, switch segments here, uh, and this is n- not just a problem with the Royal Opera House, but with pretty much every single uh, opera house, really aside from Chicago Opera Theater, that we've run through the Dodson scale, and that's there is, there's just not a lot of women in leadership positions. You'll see them on stage, and you'll see the occasional director or uh, or conductor, but in terms of you know administration, in terms of proportions of uh, these leadership positions, women are dramatically underrepresented. Uh, and I think a part of that is because they're not quite as visible as the singers, you know, uh, so they don't get the pressure from audiences to say, hey, why don't you hire an artistic director who's a woman? You know, this is a problem that we've seen even in a lot of the really progressive, uh, relatively speaking, uh, houses uh, in Europe, even compared to uh, the U.S. And it's 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 the more we do the dots and scale, the more it bothers me. And I think this is one of the reasons I really wanted to sort of bring back this lost segment was to once again bring back the idea that we need more women in opera in these leadership positions. Let us know what you think of the upcoming season at Covent Garden. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score, post on that Facebook page, and of course email us the old-fashioned way, 
OperaBoxScore at gmail.com. All right, more stats from Opera Land coming your way. That's next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendanten Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in opera land over the past week. The Metropolitan Opera has announced that it plans to replace seven staged performances of Berlioz's The Damnation of Faust that have been scheduled for next season with four concert presentations of the work. The company cited, quote, unanticipated technical demands in remounting Robert Lepage video-heavy production, which proved, quote, impossible to accommodate within the already crowded production schedule. Lepage's staging first premiered at the Met in 08. How big can opera be? Try 680 musicians and technicians performing 15 hours of music from an opera cycle originally 29 hours long. Karlheinz Stockhausen, the bad boy of post-war German composers, and his Licht cycle... Written over 25 years and completed in 2003, involved one opera for each day of the week. In Amsterdam, the Holland Festival is attempting the first overview of this sprawling work over three days. Fifty years ago this month, a police raid on a Greenwich Village watering hole jump-started the gay liberation movement when the denizens of the Stonewall Inn and their neighbors fought back with bricks, bottles, and spontaneous kick lines. Among the flurry of city activities planned for the anniversary are the opera Stonewall by Ian Bell and Mark Campbell, which New York City Opera will premiere at Rose Hall on June 21st. Technology has a knack for making the impossible somewhat possible as showcased by Smool, an online network that allows anyone to sing side-by-side side with their favorite artists. It's now stepped into the world of opera, partnering with San Francisco Opera and most recently the production team behind Ron Howard's movie Pavarotti. On the disabled list, Placido Domingo made his Dresden Zemper opera debut earlier this week in Verdi's Nabucco, but he sang just the first act of the opera. Audience was told he could not return after the interval as a result of the flu, and on this day, June 10th, it's the birthday of composer Frederick Lowe in 1901, the birthday of Italian conductor Bruno Bartoletti in 1926, and the premieres of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde in 1865, and The Prodigal Son by Benjamin Britten in 1961, that's your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. 
Hopper box score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Oh, the Warriors up by 12 on the Raptors. Mm. Halfway through the third period. Woo! 75-63. Kevin Durant. That calf feels good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Durant forced to exit after re-injuring leg. Oh, no! Kevin Is that Durant, real life? That's real life, dude. He's apparently not feeling so good. I yeah. mean, he hurted his leg. You don't miss nine games if you are not injured. Hey, guys, have we talked about the Pavarotti movie on this show? We mentioned it. Have any of you seen it? No, but, I mean, it's out right now. Why have we not gone as a group and just gotten... Let me tell you, frosty beverages to watch it. I I read I read a review of it on NPR and they panned it. Really, they hated it. I I think all of next show is going to be about opera in the movies. It's got eighty two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got seven point three out of ten on IMDb. Okay, dude, of course NPR is going to (laughs) rail. Every classical musician is going to rail on a thing that's by Ron Howard about Pavarotti, and everybody's going to rail on Pavarotti because they're going to say you can't read music, but the truth is (laughs) he's one of the most important musical artists that we've ever had on the planet. (laughs) So everybody can shove it. Bro, bro, I want you to go see it between now and Monday, if you're on the show on Monday, (laughs) and then you you can do a deep dive. Into this movie, I there would was, love was a, to. Please, there was, a, there was please another do. opera movie combo thing that I wanted to talk about next week, which I can't remember. I'm still shocked that even at the Metropolitan Opera, they're able to bite off more than they can chew. That this is and this blow is their so scheduling. bizarre to me. This makes no sense because uh, it's it's not as if they were creating a production from scratch. They're reusing the one from uh, 08. Yeah, I, I don't understand what the possible problems could be well, to the it being... sounded to me like there have been some uh new changes um to union standards um and technical oh. standards that either when this was planned had not been implemented and then when it was revisited really changed what the budget was mm. um but normally in a situation like that and and so that along with the time it said all of the machinery would have to be refurbished and rebuilt as well okay based on yeah. these standards so i think they got thrown some serious curveballs however a company with you know a budget that's 300 million north of or whatever You'd think would I? I would. There's, there's, okay, there's okay, some seems to be some gross oversight. Here, here's yeah. how it works: is that if you're the Met, just like Lyric Opera of Chicago, during the summer, when you don't have shows running, you tech every show, mm-hmm, sure, and you figure it all out so that you're not having to f- tech everything while you're in repertory. You got a little bit more time. Sure, the pressure is off during the summer, so therefore the Met must have figured this out last summer yeah and had known this is going to be a problem so why is it only coming to light now it's really bizarre a concert production is also a weird solution i think it would make more sense for them to be like okay screw it we're scrapping this and we're just pulling carmen out of mothballs you know or something like that a concert version well, like a, or, or dare I say, for the Met, it seems look, like a weird. Solution. No, man, it's e- it's even easier. You do the same show, sure. You keep whatever the original budget was, and you give it over to a brilliant emerging director. <laughs> there he is. Uh, there he is. I'm, no, I didn't say this me. Is, this is the pitch. I'm sure. I hope you're listening, Peter Gelb. And that person, they would kill 
for that opportunity. And there you are. You are you are keeping the same work in the repertoire. It's going to be a different production. It's going to be a different yeah. interpretation. You are fostering young emerging talent, and you're not losing any money. Yeah, they, it's I, not hard. I think the ideal director for this kind of thing would be um, a curly haired red uh, curly red haired sort of podcast host, about three and a half feet tall. You know, uh, <laughs> sitting right here, ready to go. <laughs> you know, I will say something about, too about it. That's a twelve year old. Production anyway. Yeah, it's a was that old. the last time they did Damnation of Faust? It might I believe so. Look it up. I, I mean, I remember yeah, this production, but I'm saying like it. it you know, it, it, there were other solutions then. Right. I I also this. kind of wonder if uh, it if it was one of those things where they're like, mm, is this production even really that impressive anymore? Because I remember it, that was that was uh, they did a live in HD of it uh, a long time ago, uh, and I assume in 2008, and they were not. Uh, uh, I don't think it's. I don't think it was because I mean it's a lot of damnation to Faust. I mean it's not one that people like have heard of. Uh, well, I mean, well, I mean it's more known than like Beatrice and right, Benedict but or it, it, it was still a, a, a weird amount of money to throw at it. And I think the technical elements of ooh, we have these interactive projections and things like this are not as impressive as they were. I'm telling you right now, ago. every time you have video projections, it bites you in the ass. True. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying you can't do it well. I saw a production of Porgy and Bess at uh, a certain Southern Opera company that will remain nameless, where they uh, half the screen. Aren't you got... from Mobile, Alabama? No, <laughs> I'm let, not. Let and, the man talk. Okay. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they had projections for like the hurricane sequence, and uh, half the screen was just a blue screen of death. Yes. Oof, it was real bad. Somebody lost their job on that last thing, and, and then we'll stop hating on on the Met. <laughs> but, so there were these seven stage performances. That's now been reduced to these four concert presentations. It's right. not it's not a seven for seven because they feel like the ticket sales will be lower. That's even more suspicious to me because I feel like, you know, there's something else going around behind the scenes that that really has messed them up financially. I mean, that or well, yeah. Hey, let let's um. You want to listen to the Stockhausen? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So like, you know, the the Mets sort of like ditching something because it's too expensive, and here is uh, just the Licht cycle for just some background for people who might not be necessary necessarily as familiar with it. The Licht cycle is uh, seven operas. It's a it's a cycle like the Ring cycle, but there's no beginning, there's no end. The story is absolutely bonkers. It's got the devil, Adam and Eve, Michael, the archangel. And they're all named after a day of the week. So there's Donnerstag aus Licht, uh, Samstag aus Licht, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they were composed over a span of 1977 to 2003. And they're all as bizarre as you would want them to be with Schockhausen. So let's listen to just a little bit of it.
And it just goes on like that for 29 hours. Weston was tapping his toe. I love this piece <laughs> so much. This is this is one of those pieces that's that's almost frustrating because uh, Stockhausen. I think you're frustrating. Oh, it's true. I mean, I am. Uh, but Stockhausen Weston was tapping his toe. Just jazzing along. It's kind of jazzy, right? You know, the the, the, the trumpet feel, uh, features very prominently. This is a Thursday, Donnerstag, Auslich. It, f- it features very prominently because this one features Michael, who is, of course, the, the angelic trumpeter. Um, but it's a, uh, it's, it's a very, I mean, it's Stockhausen. It's weird. Um, and it was also, it also started in like sort of the heyday of, of, of like avant-garde opera recordings. So you have uh, full studio recordings of Donnerstag and Zamstag. And then uh, everything else was written in the era of, oh, no, we no longer have money to do uh, full uh, studio recordings of weird stuff anymore, um, which is really a bummer to me. I have both extant uh, recordings, um, which is why I think this is so exciting for me and possibly only me uh, that they're doing this sort of granted condensed version, but a a, a version that is uh, meant to give you a sense of the span of the seven days of the full light cycle um to to sound very uh tron of me to say that out loud um but i i I have never heard anything outside of thursday and saturday with the exception of brief little clips of rehearsals from this opera company i love a challenge reading about the forces involved in this Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like it's okay it gives me a panic attack. It, it is very <laughs> there's, stressful. There's so many moving parts, millions and millions of things that could go wrong with every single performance. I saw a um, a production of uh, of Donna's talk. I think it was Donna's talk, um, which was a, a live broadcast from uh, I can't remember. Anymore. I want to say it was a French company, um, but uh, literally the uh, beginning of the piece is a brass sort of band that that basically just plays by themselves for a, a, a while. I can't remember how long. It's a big chunk of time, but it's meant to happen out in the lobby, not on the actual stage. And then there's the actual production on stage. And then at the very end, you're supposed to set up trumpet players going out, positioned in very specific places, playing as people leave. <laughs> uh, and then all that music's written down. It's crazy notation because none of it's tonal. There's a lot of experimental stuff. Stockhausen is a avant-garde delight. My favorite thing is to watch interviews with Karlheinz Stockhausen on YouTube because he talks exactly like you would expect the person who <laughs> writes that music to, to, to talk like. And he, he's a delight, and uh, I love it so much. <laughs> Toby, you know that you might be the only person in the studio that uses smool. <laughs> you know, it's such a totally dopey name. By as the way. an avid I mean, user of Smule, you know, I'm not gonna hate on him because 40 million users, but I had never personally well, sure. heard of them or it or whatever. <laughs> or the app. I think it just sounds like TikTok to me. Well, okay, so from a singer perspective, we do this all the time, we record ourselves. With someone in the background, we listen, we compare. Like, I, I honestly, I probably have 50 recordings on my phone of just that, you know, for practice sessions and comparing vowels and comparing sounds. And so I looked at this and I was like, yeah, and <laughs> crap, I could have profited <laughs> off of that. 
but to people who aren't trying to sing at a professional level and who are trying to sing along with pop singers, I mean, it's it's a really fascinating experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the video in the Opera Wire um, article that we've shared does show someone singing along with Nessun Dorma to Pavarotti. And I mean, it's, I, I don't know, I guess it's kind of cool. <laughs> like, I mean, she was an obviously trained singer. But to an obviously trained singer, I'm like, well, this is dumb. Haven't we been doing this with YouTube for years? Would you be willing to put this on your homework list for next week as well? Get some smooth. Sing along with Pavarotti, and then we put it on the website. Nah, man, I don't do. I don't publish my recordings. All right, that's oh, fair. That's fair. The, yeah. the, the republished reco- the, repu- the the published recordings are out there for people to have. I'll do it for you. I know. Yes. Pavarotti and I have a very similar vocal range and quality, so I'm I sure it'll that, be great. I didn't mean that to be rude, George. <laughs> you, you weren't rude at all. Uh, Weston, you must be thrilled that the premiere of Tristan I am. is on this day I, in It's the only thing that could incite me more than the Licht cycle. Um, yeah, I mean, I at some point, it's tricky. I would love to do a, uh, a Hall of Fame or something on Wagner, and specifically Tristan, except he was such a terrible person. Uh, so we'll, we'll invent a different segment, I'm sure, for that. But Tristan and Isolde is genuinely... Uh, in my view, one of the most piece, perfect pieces of art ever created. Not necessarily my favorite, not necessarily the best, but the most perfect because thematically, um, uh, musically, philosophically, the story lines up. It all comes together in a whole that cannot be extricated from itself. And then, of course, the the orchestration, the use of the Tristan chord uh, to preserve harmonic tension um, across the entire opera absolutely revolutionary it cannot be understated how important this opera was and i know there are a lot of wagner haters out there and sometimes i am one but it truly is one of the best pieces ever created i saw a bizarre production of this in essen in germany like six years ago where all of act one took place in this teeny little box like (laughs) tristan and Isolde were in this box that was like four feet square Oh, and the box, the box, the box <laughs> rotated. It was awesome. I'm stealing that idea. All right, let us wrap up this show. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight, everybody. Let's see here. Good calls, bad calls. Weston. I have a call. I don't know if it's good or bad, but uh, <laughs> here at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, Maria Callas will be walking the stage again in the form of a hologram this uh, this autumn, and it's going to be real weird. I was raised in a very anti-Callas household, so I'm calling, I'm making this a bad call, but maybe it'll be a good call because the hologram will be good. It's going to be bizarre, and I'm looking forward to it. Tobias, right? You got anything? Um, Canada is beautiful. Hiking in the mountains <laughs> is beautiful. It was the uh, first vacation I've taken in a long time. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. General managers at WNUR, Henry Muscal and Samil Songby. Our announcer, Norm Waddell, is at VoxerShorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content. From operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Lucia Lucas. For Tobias Wright and Weston Williams. 
I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera while you make your garden grow. We're back on Monday, June 17, 9 p.m. Central, when we go to the movies and talk about opera's representation on the silver screen. Plus, more opera, more hot takes, more head-spinning numbers. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. It's Chicago's Sound Experiment. Sweet caress, swears he never leave, he never leave.